this morning. Thank you for joining us today. The time change used to be an issue for me before we had children. And now that we have children, they're, you know, like, it's actually some free time in the morning before the kids get up. So I don't, I don't mind at all the time change, but thank you for being here with us today. And uh, we are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2 and uh, just verses 1 through 3, which in a manner of speaking, rounds out creation week, and uh, we're going to look at these verses. So if you would open your Bible probably to page 2, I'm going to read these verses for us. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. Father, we worship you together this morning. We celebrate the fact that we get to be called your children, and we get to have access to you, that you have made yourself known to us that You have sent Your Son who has given His own life in obedience and in death for us, to redeem us. You have given Your Spirit who lives within us, who ministers to us even now. You've given us Your Word in our hands. We pray, Father, that You would minister to us even this morning as we have your word open, as we seek to understand this seventh day, as we seek to understand what you have for us here today, we ask that you would be at work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was growing up and uh, was a teenager, a young teenager, I had a, a job, a pretty unofficial job, kind of the same job every farm kid has ever had. I would uh, drive equipment and stuff for neighbors and, and bail when they didn't want to because that starts at really early in the morning and they didn't want to get up, so they'd send me out and whatnot. Well, I remember uh, one time, I, I don't remember what day of the week it was, it was probably Monday, it was in the summertime, and, and a piece of equipment broke down. And, um, and so the farmer came out and, and uh, he said, you know why this happened, don't you? And I thought, I, please tell me, I don't, I don't know why it happened. He says, well, it's because of what you were doing on the Sabbath. And I thought, what? <laughs> I had no idea. Not having grown up in the church, I didn't, uh, you know, that was, that was one of my first ex- exposures to the word Sabbath. And I thought, what is the deal with this? That he thinks, you know, I was hexed or something bad happened uh, later on because I had uh, worked on the Sabbath or I had done, you know, who knows what I had done or he thought I had done on the Sabbath. And I thought, what is the root of that? What is, where does that come from? Well, I don't know uh, much more about the root of that in his own thinking. But as we look into Scripture and we look at this passage that we're talking about today, we can see what is the root of the Sabbath principle in the Bible. And you saw that the word Sabbath is not used in our verses here, but we're going to see that there's a connection that is carried on really throughout the rest of Scripture. And and in this brief passage, just these three verses, we see an emphasis on on God's work, and then God's rest. 
And we're going to see how the rest of Scripture carries on that notion with our work and our rest. And so uh, we will uh, look at this passage in relation to that. But before we really get to digging into these verses, uh, what is God's work? What is God's work that he had done? He rested from all his work that he had done. It says that three different times. And, and so, you know, we think back to the first chapter of the Bible because we're only in the second one. And of course, in those uh, first verses of the Bible, we have the six days of creation. And we worked through those and we talked about those and we saw that, that on day one there was the creation of, of, of day and night. And uh, that's kind of a realm in a manner of speaking. And there was light and there was darkness and things like that. And we saw that in day two there was the creation of heaven or the heavens where there was a separation, there was an expanse. And, and you have the creation of heaven, uh, the creation of the heavens, which would be like the sky and kind of the air we breathe and and sort of that sort of region. And then on the third day, we saw that there was a creation having separated uh, the, the, the waters below from the land below and put the land in one place that was the earth and then the water in another place that was the sea. And so you have the creation on the third day of those realms of earth and sea. And then even on that day, there began to be some plants in those different places to, to populate that. Uh, with plant life. And so in the first three days, we saw the creation of kind of the, the, the realms uh, in which uh, there would be population later on and, uh, and, and day four of creation. He created the sun and the moon and the stars that um, they were just his creation. And we see this again and again throughout chapter one that, you know, God didn't have to roll up his sleeves and, and get out the shovel and work, you know, by the sweat of his brow and, 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 you know, all this kind of stuff. He spoke it into existence. Let there be, and there was. God has that kind of creative power that he didn't have to muster up a whole bunch of energy. He didn't have to take pre-existing stuff and reform, formulate it and shape it into something that would be useful. He spoke it and it was. That's the power of our God. And that's the power that's demonstrated in chapter 1, that he has the ability, he has the power to, uh, to create out of nothing so that there exist all things by his speech. And so even the, the, the sun and the moon, which were, which were these uh, things that are in the sky that end up being worshipped by pagan nations, and, and, uh, and even now in some ways those are worshipped, and the stars and, and things like that, that those weren't competing gods as if God was having to show himself stronger than, than the sun or something like that. No, he created it by speech. That's all it took. And that's how much greater is our God. That is how, how much greater is the God of the Bible than the gods uh, of the surrounding nations. Their idols, the, the, the figments of their imagination that they have put into the place of deity and, and whatnot that our God uh, created the sun, the moon, and the stars. Those things you worship, he spoke them into existence. That was day four. So he's populating day and night. And uh, the seasons come from that and all of those things. Day five, we see that he creates down here the sea creatures and the birds of the heavens. And so he populates those realms by speaking them into existence, by creating them. And, and we saw that they reproduce after their kind and they're to, to, to fill up. They're to, to expand and multiply and fill up. And that was day five. And of course, day six, we saw an emphasis on the creation of the land creatures and the culmination, the capstone, the high point of all of creation. Finally, you have man created. 
and put into this whole realm, put into this whole world. And he's been given a unique position and, and a unique title as the, uh, created in the image of God after, after his likeness. And he's been given this task of, of reigning over, of having dominion over all of creation. And so God has done all of that in the span of six days. He did it by speaking. He did it in simple acts of creation, uh, showing his power. Then we get to our passage today, and it says that after having done all of that, he rests. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished. They were brought to completion, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. There's an emphasis, and one more time you're going to see it in the next verse. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Our Sunday school class, which has been talking about Bible study and how to interpret the Bible hermeneutics, one of the, uh, one of the things that we do is look for re- repeated words and repeated phrases. And even in these three verses, you see repeated words and repeated phrases that the author wants us to keep in mind. He doesn't want us to, though we've turned the chapter perhaps, the, we, maybe we've turned the page, he doesn't want us to forget that all things that exist, exist because he made them. This is the work he has done. The things that exist around us sometimes can become distracting to us and we, we focus on them and we, and we imagine somehow, maybe subconsciously or maybe, maybe actively, we imagine somehow that this is all really there is and that's what the person who is the naturalist believes, that this stuff we can see, the things we can touch, that's all that really exists. And our author here would, would, would shake us out of that and remind us what exists, exists because God put it there. God created it. This is the work that he has done. And so he rests at the end of this, which raises the question, does God need rest? You know, after six days of hard work, I, I need rest. You know, I, I feel like I need rest before that and because I'm worn out and I'm exhausted and whatever. And, and it's different with God, though. Did God, you know, become exhausted at the end of each day? Was he just... You know, couldn't couldn't wait to put his head on the pillow and kind of shake off that day's work and hopefully he'd get rested for the next day. And no. The creation was by a word spoken. So what does it mean that he rested if he if he doesn't rest exactly the same way we do? I mean, we get tired and our body stops working and we we uh, want to go to bed and whatnot. But what about him? The idea of of rest when we talk about God resting it's it's really the idea of ceasing that he was creating and now he ceased creating but it's not just stopping as in phew I'm glad that's over it's the idea of someone who has has you know cleaned out their garage they've made room in their garage and they they bought a you know the, the frame or maybe just the, the the chassis or just the parts of some classic car in their garage and they and that becomes their hobby and they spend time on it they get home from work and they go downstairs and they tinker and they buy parts and they repaint and they sand and they spend all this time and they're remaking the car and finally they've got this you know what what was a maybe a, a rusty or you know um old piece of metal in their garage is now this shiny, beautiful, classic car that they put all of this labor into. 
And they've worked hard and they've, they've spent a lot of money on it. They've spent a lot of time on it. They've invested weekends and nights and, and all this kind of stuff and they're exhausted. And they finally, you know, turn that last screw or they, or they, they, they attach that last gizmo or, or whatever they do is the last thing. They don't, they don't want to go take a nap. There's no chance. Even if for some reason, on a Friday night after work, you think, I'm so close to finishing this car, and you stay down in the garage all night, and midnight comes, and 2 a.m., and 4, and the sun comes up, and you're still out there, and you finish, and it's about 6 o'clock on Saturday afternoon, right? You've worked hard for 24 hours, and you, and you finish that last thing. You're still not going to go take a nap. You're going to sit down behind the wheel, put the key in the ignition, and start it up. You're going to drive that thing. I don't care how tired you are. You're going to drive that classic car that you have worked so hard to rebuild. And that's the, that's the notion, that's the concept here with God, that having put everything together, having you know, put the, the, all, the, all the gizmos and the who's-its and the, everything in the right place and polished them up and getting everything arranged in the, in the world, in the universe, now he sits down behind the wheel and he starts it. He's driving it. He's at the controls that's what it means to rest. And so he sits down behind the wheel, as it were, and he wants to take it for a spin. That He has spent six days of creation. He has put it all together and he's fashioned it just so. And, and people who study science and people who study physics and people who, who study all manner of, uh, you know, maybe medicine and, and stuff like that, they see the intricate patterns and the, and the perfection of how God has put this all together. His design, His creative capacity, the beauty of how it all works, how our bodies heal, that's a weird thing. You can get a cut and it will heal. But God has designed us that way. And having put in all of that work, having, having designed the world, He sits down and He rests. Behind the wheel, engine running, and He takes it for a spin. So He assumes the controls. That's what this idea of rest means. He has finished creating and he now takes up the controls to operate all things. And when God rested on the seventh day, verse 3 tells us that he blessed it and made it holy. There's something special about that seventh day that, that rather than being a day of creation, he had ceased, uh, he had completed creation. And now on day seven, he blesses that day and he makes that day holy. The first days. The first six days, if you think about it, had been incomplete. The project is incomplete. It's still, you know, in the garage on blocks. And it might, you know, you go down the next day and it's got more on it. And you've done some more stuff and maybe it's got, you know, seats in it eventually. And it's got, you know, whatever. You, you're putting it together piece by piece. Each day leading up to even the end of the sixth day. It's finally at the end of the sixth day that it's complete. Everything is together. So it had been incomplete up to that point, but day seven... It's complete. It's finished. It's perfected. And so he blesses that day and he makes that day holy. All things have become complete on that day. And there's, before we uh, move on and, and in our discussion today, there's a, a point of application for us that we need to keep in mind. And that is, we need to rest like God rested. This passage that we're reading now 
is not that intricate. There's not uh, a whole lot of mystery and, and things that are very difficult in the language or anything like that to dig out. But what's fascinating about this passage and very important for us to keep in mind is that it will come up again and again in Jewish legislation. As the law is given and different applications of the law, we're going to hear uh, this passage again and again. For example, in the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The reason given is this, quote, for in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And you'll see that pattern again and again, where the lawgiver is referring back to God having rested on the seventh day is a pattern for us. And so the first aspect of that pattern, God rests on the seventh day, and that itself is a pattern for us. We need to rest one day in seven. This is often called the Sabbath principle, the concept of there being a regular aspect of your week that has a day of rest. We need that. And uh, when you go uh, into various cultures at different times uh, throughout history, particular uh, with different applications of Marxism and whatnot, they have very actively sought to recalibrate and recalculate the week. Maybe maybe make a ten day week. You know, everything's metric. You know, maybe let's make a metric week. So it's a ten day week. But people rebelled against it. I mean, they instituted it from on high, and people, it, it never worked. It just never works. There's something in us going all the way back to this time, I believe, and in, enforced by the influence of Christianity throughout the history of the world, that there's this emphasis on one day of rest in a seven-day work week. So that's, that's an aspect of it that, that we need to imitate, that, that's important for us. But there's a second aspect of it. The way God rested is also a pattern pattern for how we should look at our Sabbath rest. The way he rested is a pattern for the way we ought to rest. Sunday is the day that we get to focus our attention, our energies, on the one most important thing in the Christian life, our triune God. This is the day we get to set aside from those other pursuits, to focus on God. To, to make the main thing the main thing. You know, the time comes uh, during the week. You may get up early so you can read your Bible and spend time with God, but eventually you're going to have to go to work. Eventually you're going to have to start doing these other things. Eventually the press of life, the demands of life will, will creep in and you go and work hard on that day. Though you started off spending time with God, though you maybe do so later or, or whatever, yet the day creeps in. But Sunday is to be a different day. The Sabbath day is to be a different day. The rest of the week is when we get all of our work out of the way so that we are freed up to spend our Sundays focusing undistractedly on the Lord. The language that's used again and again when it, in regards to the Sabbath is six days, work hard. Get all your work done. So that on the Sabbath day you can rest. So that you can have that time where the press of life is not creeping in. And you can enjoy your triune God and your relation, relationship with Him. That's a, the pattern that we have again and again in the Scriptures. It's about us focusing on the Lord and not being distracted by the press of life that Monday through, through Saturday has for us. These other demands that we have. So, Sunday... 
is is not about taking naps, though I take naps on Sundays. Now, that's not the greatest thing about a Sunday, though, is it? I mean, I enjoy my naps probably more than the next person. <laughs> but it's not the greatest thing about Sunday. It's not about recreating, right? It's a time when there's a break in my schedule and I've gone to church in the morning and I've got opportunity. It's not primarily about recreating or something like that. It's not... It's a day for us to enjoy and focus on the fact that God, by his own mercy, has made the Christian his own child. And the rest of the week builds up to that. The rest of the week is, is important. The jobs that we do and, and, and all of the other things that we have to take care of, those are all important. And so we work hard at those and we, and we provide in those contexts and we do everything we need to do in those contexts and we arrange things such that Sunday is a time that is set aside, that is holy. That's what holy means. And so it's set aside and we have uh, that opportunity to focus on God. And so we need to uh, not just observe a one day and seven rest kind of idea, but, but the way God rested is... Uh, needs to be a pattern for us in the way we rest. That his rest was sitting down at the controls. Our rest is enjoying him sitting down at the controls. As if we sit in the back and he's taking us on a Sunday drive. This is what our rest is about. And so how, how can we do this? What are some practical ways that we can do this? Well, we could, you know, spend extra time reading the Bible. Often in a sermon, I'll, I'll suggest a particular you know, passage or, or uh, a couple of chapters or something like that. Take some time that afternoon and read that and think about that. Or, or some study that you're doing on your own. If you look at your schedule and you think, I just don't have enough time for Bible study, well, find time on Sunday. You could put in some extra time undistracted on that day. Or, or maybe uh, spend some time reading a book from the Resource Center or some other solid Christian book. Or studying some topic. Maybe there's a question that arises in the sermon and you think, I don't know. I need to spend some more work on that. Well, you have an opportunity every Sunday afternoon. And so uh, try and study that out. Try and, and look at that and see and, and see if you can come up with an answer to that. Maybe spend some extra time praying on a Sunday. One of the things I think people love about Sundays is that it's slower. You don't have the press typically, of having to get to work on time and, and get this thing done and appointments and stuff like that. And I know there are exceptions. My, you know, my mom is a nurse, and so uh, I understand my dad's a farmer. <laughs> I understand about needing to work in some cases on Sundays, etc. I, I get that. The idea is that we arrange our lives in such a way that as much as is possible, we're able to set aside time on a Sunday for these purposes. Maybe spend some extra time praying. Or maybe spend some extra time talking with your children about what they learned that morning. I try not to use words that are too big in a message. I know there are kids in the, in the room, and, and my own or some of them. But talk to them about what they learned. Talk to them about what they heard. Maybe what they didn't understand. Maybe I made a reference that they had no clue about. Or maybe it was a concept that, that you hadn't really thought about, or perhaps that they hadn't really thought about. We need to rest like God rested by meditating on and enjoying the fact that he is behind the wheel. This is the day for doing that. Well, I've 
I've used the language uh, in mixed fashion where I've talked about uh, the Sabbath and I've talked about Sunday. And those of you who are uh, really paying attention know that, that the Sabbath really is Saturday, the seventh day of the week, and Sunday is the first day of the week. And I've used those things interchangeably, and that uh, wasn't just laziness. That I will admit to laziness, but that wasn't really uh, the, what's going on there. The New, Te- New Testament church began to worship on the first day of the week, the day when Jesus rode, rose from the dead. That's the first day of the week, and they called it the Lord's Day. And so, for example, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, we have Paul who's, who's in Troas, and he's preaching, and they're together on the Lord's Day, and he, he preaches long. Okay, So I find justification for preaching long. But the bad part is that this guy Eutychus fell out the window and died, so I don't really like that part. But, uh, but it was on the Lord's Day, and Paul went down, and the Lord uh, raised him from the dead. But that was on the Lord's Day they were meeting. The church was together, and Paul was preaching. Likewise, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day when he received the visions, the revelation of uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, the implication being he was at church. He was in jail, but he was having church when this happened. That's the implication. And the early church continued this practice. It became more and more the case that the early church would worship on the Lord's Day rather than on the Sabbath. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One we've already mentioned is uh, the resurrection, but there are two aspects of that. The seventh day celebrates the old creation. The first day celebrates the new creation, which has begun with the resurrection of Jesus. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creature. He is a new creation. Well, that started with the resurrection of Christ. That started on the first day of the week, and so we honor that. We keep that in mind by worshiping together on the Lord's Day, this day, Sunday. There's another aspect. The seventh day is the sign of the Old Covenant. The Sabbath is the sign of the Old Covenant. The Lord's Day is the commemoration of Jesus establishing the New Covenant. We are not Old Covenant believers. We are New Covenant believers. And so we worship on the first day of the week. So that's why those two are, I've been using them interchangeably. That's a very brief sketch of that. But this idea of Sabbath is uh, patterned after God's rest, after his creative work. What about our work? The resting that we do on a Sunday is not ultimately about ceasing from our, our labors throughout the week. That's not ultimately what it's about. It, it connects with that, but that's a small part. There's a greater part of the work that is being focused on here that is our um, what we are resting from. The real rest that we have, that we celebrate today, that we commemorate today, that we keep in mind and are reminded of today, the real rest that we have is from working to earn God's favor. That's the rest we really need. That's the rest that is overriding, and that's the rest that will be used throughout the rest of Scripture. Uh, This idea of a, a Sabbath rest in the week is to point beyond just how you schedule your calendar. It points beyond that to our relationship with God himself. And so the seventh day, that that rest, the real rest at point there, is the rest, the cessation of our working to earn God's favor. Paul says in Romans 2 that in, in God's righteous judgment, he will render to each one according to his works. That there's an aspect 
built within us where the natural man seeks to earn God's favor by working, by doing. Paul says, well, he will render to each one according to his works. But the problem is, that is bad news for you and me. That is bad bad news for all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Tallying up your works is tallying up strikes against you. And so that's a problem for us. And and that the reason is because by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes not righteousness like we think. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. So as that law is placed in front of us, as we as we work that treadmill, as we, as we seek to please God, to gain favor with Him by the things that we do, what we find is God's law actually just reveals how poorly we're doing. And the more closely, the more intently we look at the law and examine ourselves, the more clearly we see just how poorly we are doing. And so, if we are trying to curry favor with God by our efforts, we find ourselves in trouble. Because Jesus set the bar too high. He said, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He didn't say accumulate a goodly number of, of, uh, of works of mixed quality. He said, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Man's natural bent, his natural inclination, the thing that he naturally goes back to again and again is a legalistic mindset. We think that we have to earn God's smile. And somehow we think that we have the capacity to earn God's smile. One of the very first things that, that you have to do when you're evangelizing uh, people is to help them to see that they do, in fact, need a Savior outside of themselves. Many times that's the hardest part of evangelism is to get someone to see that because they're looking at their own track record. They're, they're looking at their own Savior that they've got inside and the, and, and the things that they can do, the things they're capable of. And, and part of our task in, in sharing the gospel with someone is sharing the bad news that you need a Savior. Unbelievers have to understand uh, that they need this Savior if they're ever going to be drawn to put their faith in Christ, the Savior. And so that's when we think about evangelism. But it's all too easy for Christians also to slip back into the same sort of thinking. Being Christians, we, we know that we could never be saved by our works or, or by the things that we do. We know that. That's a basic uh, understanding of the gospel of what it means to be a Christian. They know that they, they have God's favor through faith alone and the finished work of Christ alone. But we begin to think that in order to keep God's favor... We better contribute our part. We better do our part to retain this favor of God. If we, if we don't, we will somehow lose God's favor. And depending upon what church or theological tradition you ask about that, they might tell you that actually you can just lose your salvation entirely. Man's natural bent is a legalistic, works-based one. We think we have to earn to keep God's smile. And somehow we think that we have what it takes to keep God's smile by the things that we do on our own. Well, that's our work. We've looked at God's work in creation. We've looked at God's rest on the seventh day. We've looked at man's work, and not just our work in the week, but this, this important work of uh, trying to establish 
right relationship with God based upon that. But the key is our rest. Our rest. As God has rest from His works in creation, we have rest from our efforts of self-salvation. One final passage I want to look at briefly today that refers to God's rest on that first Sabbath is in Hebrews chapter 4. I said this passage is quoted or referred to numerous times throughout the Bible. And the author to the Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 4, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So, quotation going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. And then in verse 9 of Hebrews 4, he says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There's an expectation of, a, of this Sabbath rest. And it's not just when is the next Lord's Day coming, three, four, five days from now. It's, a, it's an expectation of a greater rest that the Lord's Day, the Sabbath day rest is pointing towards. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There is rest in Christ. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. To strive to enter that rest. The idea of strive, and this is it seems like a play on words here. The idea of strive is to work hard, to labor hard. You sweat and, and, and the dirt on your face and your hands are a little bit calloused and, and, and your clothes are dirty because you've been working. Strive. Strive to what? Strive to enter the rest. What are you aiming at? What are you, what are you seeking? It's rest. It's not that laborious work that comes to mind. It's not, it's not that we do enough. It's not that we finally have met God's standard somehow in our own efforts or can retain it somehow in our own efforts. What we're striving for is not to accumulate our own pedigree, but to enter the rest. We want to recognize, we want to see, and we want to understand that it is in Christ alone, in His finished work, that we have rest with God. That in Christ, there is nothing remaining to be done. Jesus did it all. There is no penalty remaining to be paid. Jesus paid it all. That by faith in Christ alone, we have acceptance with God. And by faith in Christ alone, we retain acceptance with God. There is rest. And so we don't continue on that treadmill. We don't continue trying to amass our wealth of works. We cease trying to receive or retain God's favor by our efforts. The Christian is the one who has realized we could never succeed at receiving or in retaining God's efforts. By God's blessing by our own efforts. Just observe your life for a few moments. Just think about your track record. And you will observe your proneness to failure. It's the same as mine. If I were given the beauty of this salvation and then I were left in charge of keeping it intact, I would blow it. And you would too. 
The Christian realizes that about himself. He doesn't have the, uh, the, the wherewithal within himself either to, uh, to receive initially God's favor nor to retain that favor once he has it. The Christian is the one who's realized that we could never succeed at either of those. But Paul locates this truth at the very heart of uh, the great epistle to the Romans that we spent time working through in chapter 3 and verses 21 and following. He says, Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Righteousness is for those who believe. By faith, we have that righteousness. By faith, we have the record that says we have kept God's law. And the penalty has been paid for our own sins. We have right standing before him. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption is not in my redeeming works that I did, in my redeeming my life, and my redeeming my track record before God. The redemption is to be found in Christ Jesus, whom, verse 25, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's rest. That's rest. We no longer run on that treadmill, the one that we were that we were. Uh, running before we came to Christ and the one that we're still tempted to run. We have rest. Ultimate rest from that. And so in conclusion, thinking uh, back about what we've covered today, after six days of creating all things, God rested on the seventh day. He blessed that day. He made that day holy as the day on which all mankind should also rest. The great but utterly hopeless work from which we need rest is working to earn God's favor, to earn our salvation. That's the ultimate rest that we need. And the the weekly reminder that is the Lord's Day, our Sabbath rest, is pointing beyond that, though it's important in its own right, is pointing beyond that to rest in Christ. Rest from the efforts to save ourselves. And so if you are still laboring under that system, you need to know that it doesn't lead to salvation. If you're on the treadmill, if you're trying to accomplish those things on your own, if you're trying to gain God's favor by your own efforts, I have important but terrible news for you. It will not work. The standard is too high and you are too flawed. It doesn't lead to salvation. It leads to a place where you will answer to God for your own actions. He will render each one according to his works. And if you're under that system, if you're on that treadmill, if you're amassing your own wealth of works, you need to hear that truth. By faith in Christ, though, we find that he has done all that is required for us to have God's full favor and smile. The work of Christ is complete. It's not mostly done. He didn't give it a really good effort. He didn't accumulate something that we need to add to. He accomplished the work. And so our rest is not in anything I've done. It's in what Christ 
has done. And so let's rest in Christ. Let's cease from our own efforts to appease God and, and celebrate that in Him we have this redemption by faith alone. That we have rest in Christ. And that's the rest that we as, as believers enjoy. And, and it's impossible to overstate the peace that comes with that in a world that, that is legalistic, that is bent towards accumulating, accomplishing, earning God's favor. And we get to rest. Not because we figured the right thing out. Not because we are smart enough. Not because we've done enough that now we can take a break. We, we rest because of Christ. Trusting in what he has done. But there's an even greater rest. There's one uh, rest that goes even beyond that rest. And that's what we celebrated yesterday when we had the funeral for Aunt LaVon. She has rested finally. The rest that we have is still in a war zone. We're still in this world where uh, we do battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil every day. And so, yes, there's rest. We have God's favor. We have peace with God. But it hasn't expressed itself in every way yet. We still face temptation. We still deal with our own sin. We still live in this world that would be against us. And so we have rest, but not, not final rest. But in that moment, when we step through the veil, when we pass from this life into the next, we enter an arena where there is no enemy. Where the world is behind us. The flesh is no more. And the devil has been dealt with. And we, in glory, will experience for the first time ever peace with God that extends in all directions. We won't have to wrestle with temptation. We won't have to wrestle with feelings of guilt because of our failures. We won't have to wrestle with the sin in our lives. There won't be any. That is done away. And we will be finally and ultimately at rest. Knowing a a peace with God that's not filtered through our sinful mind, our scarred experiences. It doesn't take place in the context of being, being battered around us. We will know peace with God face to face. With no opposition. With no hindrance. With no catch. And so, it's always sad. Funerals are, there's always, of course, a, a degree, uh, often a very great degree of sadness. But when we think about Aunt LaVon, when we think about a Christian who has passed, there's a rest that if we understood, would make us very excited even for when our time comes. So God rests on the seventh day and that sets a pattern. And that creates an expectation in us of this rest that can be ours in Christ. Let's rest in Christ. And let's even anticipate even a greater rest when we get to be with God in glory. And let's not fear death. Let's not hate death. Death, in that sense, our own passing. But let's look to the rest that we will have ultimately. Fully, fully consummated in glory. Let's pray. Father, we 
in some ways are amazed that you would take a day to rest, but we celebrate the fact that you, having created all things, take up the wheel. You're in charge, and you have designed this world the way you have on purpose, and you have been at work in this world. You are the one who is sovereignly over all things. And this rest that you experience, that you took up on that seventh day, we get to participate in. We have a small taste of it when we come together on a Sunday. We have a small taste of it when we uh, take some extra time on a Sunday to focus on, uh, on you. And it points us towards this peace that we have with you because of Christ. That we don't have a treadmill Christianity. We have rest. And we rejoice in the fact that in glory, even the, the work and the toil and the hardship and the pain and the, the challenges and the sin and the temptation and the guilt and the, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil that we deal with here will all be done away with. And we will know final and ultimate and eternal peace with you. We rejoice. And Father, as we go away, I pray that we would fix our eyes on you and celebrate the fact that you really are in control behind the wheel. And we celebrate that fact. Bless us as we go today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family to uh, come up and pray with you. Uh, if you would like, uh, just come on forward. They'll be up here to pray with you. These words from Second Peter. May you all grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen and amen. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.